Welcome to the Crown City Podcast. I'm your host, James DePietro. This is a show that explores the people and places that make our neighborhoods our home. On this episode, I have a very special guest. Leah Ferrazani is the founder and pastaya of Simolina Artisanal Pasta, located on Lincoln Avenue in Pasadena. Originally from New York, her family moved to California when she was a teenager. Leah earned her creative writing degree from Sonoma State and followed that with a master's in journalism from the University of Oregon. She combined her two passions and became a food and wine writer and managed restaurants in New York and Los Angeles, including at the fan Pizzeria Mozza. Leah worked for K&L Wine Merchants, wrote for publications such as the San Francisco Chronicle, SeriousEats.com, Edible LA, and her own blog at SpicySaltySweet.com. But her life took a dramatic turn in 2014 when she founded Simolina Artisanal Pasta. Showcasing her creativity and determination, Leah started making pasta in her home and drying it in her laundry room. After raising over $25,000 on Kickstarter, Simolina moved to a communal kitchen and expanded rapidly. Within a couple of years, their pasta was carried in 125 grocery stores and 60 boutique stores across the country. But the timing wasn't right and they gave up their communal space, regrouped, and launched a second successful Kickstarter campaign to build out what they now call is their Pasta Lab on Lincoln. So it is only fitting that when we recorded our episode, Leah was sitting on a metal ladder in her warehouse, never far from her U.S.-grown organic Durham Simolina, that she sculpts into the best fresh and dry pasta that you can find. So, without further delay, my conversation with Simolina Artisanal Pasta founder, Leah Ferrazani. Leah, welcome to the podcast. Thanks so much for having me. So before we talk about writing and pasta and semolina, I thought we could talk a little bit about your background. As I understand it, your family is originally from New York, and then you relocated to California for your father's work, I think. Um, Can you share a little bit more about where you're from and a little bit about your upbringing? Yeah, sure. So I'm originally from a small town on Long Island called Holbrook. And we moved to California from Holbrook when I was about nine and a half. And we moved to the Oak Park section of Agora, which those two places could not be more different. And it was a really hard adjustment for me. But the things that really grounded me, even at that age, were food. And I realized the things that I missed most about leaving New York were food. And so every time I would go back to New York, which is usually every other year, I started traveling by myself at a really young age, um, probably indicative of how old I am, that, you know, I was hopping on a plane willy nilly by myself when I was like 10 or 11. But I would even then plan my trips back to New York about what I was going to eat. I wanted certain greasy Chinese restaurants that I loved. I always wanted to make sure that I got good pizza and garlic nuts and Italian ices and all these things that were comfort foods for me, but that weren't really available or didn't taste the same out here. And didn't really register, I think, until about halfway through undergrad. Um, how much I identified who I was through what I ate and how much I told my story around food and, and started thinking about it and slowly started embracing that part of myself. But I think that 
I also kind of intrinsically understood the joy and the comfort that food brought to people at a very young age. I was the kid who played waitress at family parties. Um, I liked to take people's orders. I liked to remember the things that they liked to eat and just bring them over because I knew that they liked them. I remember specific things that each of my grandmothers made, you know, like I just, it it was always part of how I identified and how I connected with people. And so really it, it comes as no surprise to anybody who knew me, even as a child, that I ended up in a career in food, even though I took a quite a circuitous path to get here. But it kind of touches on all of the parts of my personality and a little bit of that displaced New Yorker thing that I held on to for a really long time. You've stated that your father was an enduring example of hard work and that this inherited scrappiness really helped you when you faced some challenges in your own career. Did you have any other mentors that were particularly influential? Obviously, like you just alluded to, my dad really, really set me up as an entrepreneur in the way that he taught me to approach the world. But there were a couple of other really big influences. Dave Wilderotter, who owns the ski shop that I worked at when I lived in Tahoe, you know, moved to Tahoe from Michigan in the 70s and then never went back and built this kind of empire of ski shops on the North Shore that was all about fun and hospitality and caring for his people. And so even from my first season working at the shop when I was in college, I sensed something different about the way that he ran his business, which really connected all of the kids, these young kids who just like showed up in this mountain town and wanted to ski, but they were unified by being part of Dave's family. And I've watched over the last 25 years that I've known him. I mean, he helped his managers put down payments on houses. He watched what was happening in the real estate market in Tahoe and bought houses to rent to seasonal employees because he saw the writing on the wall that it was going to be hard for them to be able to find places to stay as the real estate market changed. He offered health care at a time that health insurance working at a ski shop was like unheard of. So he really did a lot of things that I found just so unbelievably admirable and so out of context for the type of business that he ran. And it engendered an incredible amount of loyalty. I mean, you if you meet anybody on the street that worked for Dave, they will like sit there and talk about Dave endlessly. And and the way that he would be able to see people in their strengths and their weaknesses and cultivate their strengths and not say like, no, you're not working out here. It's like, oh, you're not doing the right thing for you. Let's see if we can figure out a way to use your skills better. And so I think he was a hugely influential part of my life and how I wanted to run my businesses. Working for Nancy Silverton when I first moved back to Southern California was another one of those moments where I saw somebody who was very connected to her business and to the people who worked with her and how she was constantly looking how to elevate uh, the people who worked for her and give them opportunities so that they stayed and really just took the thing that she did but made it bigger 
Um, and then Christine Moore, our Pasadena local, who owns Little Flower and, excuse me, also used to own Lincoln, which is fundamentally why I am here where I am right now, both as a business owner with a business that still exists, but in the physical space that I'm in as well. Um, she's, she's a shiro for me. She really, at a time where I was struggling to identify the path for my business and how I could make it work financially and balance it with the family life that I wanted to have, Christine was one of the first people who sat down and really said to me, you know, it's okay to not want to be huge. It's okay to not want to be on a plane all the time selling a brand of food that you no longer make. It's okay to have a different perspective than the the one that you're seeing as the kind of dominant paradigm, very tech-driven, you know, skyrocket to the moon approach to business that that a lot of CPG brands take. And she really helped me formulate kind of the concept that I've used as an underpinning of my growth philosophy, which is big enough. And and really recognizing that there is value both to my customers and to myself and to my employees to run a business that says, no, I'm not going to do that because the sacrifices to, you know, either our bottom line or our our balance are too big and we're not there yet. And um, so she, she's been critical in, in really teaching me to listen to that inner voice and trust it and, and build a business in the framework that I see and not necessarily in the ways that I've always been suggested to do. You alluded to it earlier and that you've had a very interesting career arc. You earned your bachelor's degree in creative writing from Sonoma State and a master's degree from the University of Oregon in journalism. Why did you want to become a writer in the first place? I think there are a couple of things. Um, you know, obviously, poetry and prose have two different perspectives. Poetry was was a thing for me about communication and connection and art. I didn't really know why I wrote. I just had to write. And... I think it was a way of me learning how to interpret the world and my place in it. My poetry has progressively gotten worse and worse as my life has gotten better. You know, angst, disappointment, the, all the negative emotions that you try to process, they, they, the poetry is fantastic for expressing those feelings and processing them and getting them out into the world. It is a lot harder to write really good, not trite poetry about happy things. <laughs> but when I transitioned out of poetry into to writing prose and eventually into journalism, I think the thing that pushed me was a sense of really wanting to understand what motivated people. I've been asking questions, why? Why, why would somebody do that? <laughs> Since I was a little kid, I just don't, both good and bad. I, I look at people and I'm just, why, why are you doing that? Why are you doing it that way? How, you know, don't you see that this, that, or the other thing? Or how did you get, like, what made you buck all the trends and do the thing that you do? And so I think I wrote a lot and endeavored to explore that human question a lot in my writing. And as I shifted from politics to science to 
art and then eventually to food, I think that that was always the driving force behind all of the questions that I was asking. So I remember writing a piece um, in grad school about the musician Tony Furtado, who is a fantastic banjo player who grew up in uh, the Bay Area, lives up in Portland now. If you like bluegrass and, and banjo music, he's just amazing. But I wrote the entire piece about how uh, at some time in in high school, he had to decide between being a sculptor and being a banjo player. And the world really won because he at that point decided to be a banjo player. But now he is a sculptor. And I was just so fascinated about how the creative energy had these two different avenues. I wrote about chefs at at different points where it was like there was this conflict and they were either going to cook or they were going to go to med school. And it was kind of the same driving force behind both of those opportunities. And so they pursued one or the other, but that fundamentally the thing that made them want to do both was the same thing. And I just thought that was so fascinating. And it's still a lot of what I do in general. I want to know why people buy the things that they buy or eat the things that they eat. I want to know what motivates the people who work with me so that I can take that motivation and and use it for their their good and mine, you know, to find out how to generate that excitement to do the next thing for themselves. And so, yeah, I think that that there's this always this driving force behind that. Now that I'm not writing, it still exists. I can certainly relate to the the poet Poetry aspect of what you're talking about. I think I probably have like a box of poetry from my 20s that in my 40s, I never want to go back to because it's a totally different part of my life. And I can't replicate that kind of angst, like you said, or anger, sadness, but also hope. It's just a really interesting kind of dynamic. After working as an editor, you served as the manager of Pizzeria Moza, the famous restaurant founded by La Brea Bakeries, Nancy Silverton, like you mentioned. How did you make the transition from writing and editing to running an incredibly popular restaurant? And what was that experience like? That particular transition was kind of comical, but and I will get to that story. But I actually have worked in restaurants since I was about 14. I've always worked in food. It was always the thing that I was doing to get where I was going. So whether I was waiting tables in grad school or I actually, when I moved to New York, I had been looking for a job in publishing and couldn't find one and ended up managing a restaurant in Tribeca. Also a random experience where like I walked in, I was like, oh, I'll be the brunch manager. You know, I'll just like come in on Saturday and Sunday. And then they fired the number two, like two weeks after I started and I was managing the entire restaurant. I had been told when I moved to New York that I couldn't get a job in restaurants without New York restaurant experience. Clearly proved that wrong. When I got the job for Moza, I was not looking to work in another restaurant. I had just put my house on the market in Tahoe. I was writing about food and wine um, as a freelancer. And I had decided because I was having some circulation issues and couldn't live in the mountains anymore. I decided to come back down to Southern California after eating a big bowl of full of crow because I said I would never come back. Like I had just written a piece for the San Francisco Chronicle and I was trying to sell some pieces on some winer, or winemakers that I knew. And I had pulled up to my parents' house and I had probably been at their house for two hours in Southern California. And I got an instant message from a guy I used to work at 
at a restaurant in New York. And he's like, hey, what's up? And I was like, oh, not much, you know, moving to L.A. and, and uh, you know, getting myself all settled. Uh, you know, I just got to my parents' house. He's like, oh, do you have a job? I was like, I've been here for two hours. No, I don't have a job. I'm actually planning on camping on the doorsteps of Bon Appetit magazine, which was still based here in LA at the time with a sign that says, we'll write for food. And that's, that's my plan. And he's like, right. So here's the deal. <laughs> here's the deal. Um, he was working for B&B restaurant group at the time and was about to be opening uh, some some of Mario Batali's restaurants in Las Vegas. And his number two was sent to help out at Moza. And they had been open for about two weeks at that point. And he's like, I want her back. And the only way I get her back is if I find somebody equally as good to work in her stead. So you should go and run that restaurant. I was like, but uh, I want to be a writer. I don't know. And then there was silence. And then five minutes later, there was a text that was like, do you have an interview tomorrow morning at 9.15 to run this restaurant? And, you know, I met Nancy and uh, David Rossoff, who is the GM of the restaurant. And it was a very natural fit. And it, it was just serendipitous. I mean, I cannot tell you how unbelievably influential it was to work at that restaurant and how many wonderful relationships, both friendships and working relationships that I have because of that. Talk about family, people who work uh, within, you know, Nancy's restaurants and Nancy herself, they really do just this wonderful job of connecting each other. I think there was a piece that Andy Wang wrote um, about me in food and wine a few years ago and he was just kind of like looking at this lineage of, of the way that you know we were all connected to one another within that restaurant family and yeah so it, I ended up managing that restaurant purely out of serendipity and I did it for shy of a year until I uh, got a job Actually, I got a job doing PR really briefly, food and wine PR, thinking that that was going to be the way that I would be able to make a living as a writer writing about food until I realized that I really didn't like coming up with stories to give to other people to write and and then got a got a job as the writer and editor for K&L Wine Merchants, who had just opened a store in Hollywood. And... I did that for seven and a half years before I started Semolina. Um, you know, I woke up every day. I wrote tasting notes. I went into the shop once a week and I tasted 30 or 40 wines. Um, you know, I interviewed the buyers. I interviewed winemakers. It was, it was tons of fun. It was really, it was a good gig. Well, I think that's a perfect transition to talking about Semolina. The legend is that you, that Simolina Pasta was born in your laundry room in Mount Washington. You engineered your own humidity controlled drying room with fans and a Vicks vaporizer, among other things. So with so many different types of food that you could have gotten into or explored, what was it about pasta that drew your interest? There were two, two parts of it. You know, I loved making pasta for fun as a childless 20, 30 something. I, I would, you know, be like Tuesday night and I'm going to make a batch of ravioli because I can. Um, and, 
And then, and then I had my first kid and all of those times where I was just like, well, you know, it's really only 45 minutes to an hour and a half. And then I just realized like that is the most insane thing for anybody who is juggling a job and a family um, to say like, it's only an hour and a half who has an hour and a half. And so I started relying on my pantry a lot more, but it was also really important to me to buy food that expressed my values. And so I, you know, I went to the farmer's market all of the time. I was always trying to buy local and organic when it came to produce. And I didn't understand why that shouldn't also carry over to my pantry ingredients. And I started looking for local and organic dried pasta um, because I still wanted to eat pasta. I loved pasta. It's a staple in my house, you know, and a foundation to so many great meals, both quick and not so quick. But I, I couldn't find it. And I said to my husband just randomly one day after like being frustrated at the market, I was like, you know, I really have a hard time finding local and organic dried pasta. I think I should start a, a dried pasta company. And he's like, oh, that's a really good idea. What do you know about drying pasta? I was like, nothing, but I don't know. I can figure it out. And I did. I mean, I started doing research, which is, you know, something that is near and dear to my heart. And obviously something that, you know, is a really good skill to have as a journalist. Um, and I just started doing deep dives and sending emails to random people and asking questions and trying to figure it out. And sometimes getting the door slammed in my face, sometimes getting um, treatises on thermodynamics written in Italian sent back to me. And, and just trying to synthesize it all and, you know, coming back to the, you know, the benefit of my dad's experience, you know, he had worked in refrigeration and air conditioning. So kind of understood humidity and um, air circulation. And so we could have these conversations about goals and and ideas and you know i i definitely adopted um his macgyver sensibilities and so just started thinking about what things i needed to use to kind of mimic the environment that i was trying to to create um and then traveled to italy to grignano to stage with a couple of producers and i spent a lot of time both watching the the little computers on the outside of the dryers to see what was happening inside the box to understand like electronically what they were doing but then you know all of my studies showed that they used to dry the pasta in the street in grignano um, with the, you know, with the breezes off the Bay of Naples, just kind of like fluttering through the fluttering through the pasta. So I spent a lot of time um, logging data points of what the weather, the natural weather patterns and wind patterns and humidity levels in Grignano. <laughs> and so combined both what I saw happening inside the box to and compared it to what was happening environmentally in those same places and could kind of see where the patterns were. Um, and extrapolate enough to, yeah, build a build a box inside my laundry room and start experimenting. That's amazing. You started making pasta at home when you had two small children. Were they old enough to understand why mommy was making pasta and drying it in the laundry room? No, because they were one and two when I started the business. Um, there are there are pictures actually of them both sitting strapped into high chairs while I'm <laughs> making pasta. You know, I 
I don't think it really clicked what was going on inside the kitchen for years for them. But I also, so where they really started seeing it, you know, was when I um, had my first commercial kitchen at, I guess they call it Amped now in, um, in Lincoln Heights, they would come to the, they would come to the factory and they would see, you know, the big machines and they would see, you know, pallet jacks and all sorts of fun things. And they just, they took it all in. And it's really funny, you know, listening to them now, they're my two best salespeople. They are 10 and eight and a half. And they have convinced all of their friends to make sure that their parents buy my pasta because it's better than anything. And if they're standing in a store where my pasta is on the shelf, they will accost people in the aisle and be like, buy my mom's pasta. It's better than that. It's fantastic. And, and they, they, they just, it's something that inspires them. I think, you know, they hear a lot about both the ups and downs of the business at home. Um, and I, and I love that part about owning a business and having young children is that I get to share the trials and the tribulations and the joys of it. And they really kind of get this sense of what it takes to do hard things. And some days you come home and you're exhausted and some days you come home and you're angry or frustrated and some days like something really awesome happens and you get to celebrate and and they get to see all those sides of it and sit on the forklift and honk the horn. You know, in addition to having to learn pasta, you had to learn how to run a business, market your product, create a brand. I mean, you've done PR, but there's a lot of different aspects of it. What were some of the greatest challenges that you faced in your first year and other than making pasta? Is there another aspect of running your small business that you really enjoyed? Oh, goodness. What wasn't a challenge? I mean, I, <laughs> I am not, I'm not a numbers person. And I think it's really easy within business in general to convince yourself of, of the right path and deny what you actually see on paper, <laughs> you know, because there's, there's a certain level of like just having to like take that chance and push against, you know, the naysayers. And even if those naysayers are numbers, but learning how to look at a PL. I still, I actually have a financial consultant that is, is helping me with some budgeting and some projections for the next year. Because as I told her, when we had our first meeting, spreadsheets make me want to throw up, which as a business owner, not necessarily a great thing to be the kind of person who makes a spreadsheet or, or has spreadsheets make them want to throw up. But it's just not, it's not easy. And there were a lot of times where things would be frustrating because people who I respected and understood more about business would try and explain things to me, but not in a way that my brain could connect. There were some fights with my dad <laughs> and my husband, um, who are both incredibly smart men and really knowledgeable and thoughtful and really wanted the best for me. But in the end, I learned that I, I needed to not be related to people that I asked um, questions about numbers to. And that one of the best things is to find somebody who can create the spreadsheet and then write a paragraph about what the spreadsheet means. Because then I get it. But that's just the way my brain processes information. And if I just look at numbers, it just kind of fades out. So that was a really hard thing to learn. Um, and I've gotten a lot better at it. And I can look at spreadsheets without getting nauseous much anymore. 
learning all of the various regulations has been kind of crazy, you know, just figuring out how to navigate, like getting onto store shelves, going through organic audits and learning traceability and logistics. And I mean, everything is, you know, like I had to learn what a HACCP plan and how to write a HACCP plan. I had to, there, there's just so many layers upon layers that a lot of food producers never even really get to because somebody else makes their product for them. And so... Every day I wake up and it's like, oh, what do I have to figure out today? But it really works in keeping me engaged because there's always a new problem to solve. So I think the first year was just a lot of that. There was a lot, there were a lot of new problems to solve and a lot of new things to learn. I also had a lot of trouble with the first dryer that I bought. Um, you know, I, I ran a Kickstarter campaign to buy it. Um, and once it showed up, you know, I thought it was going to be this like plug and play kind of thing. And um, I would turn it on and it would annihilate the pasta, just annihilate it. And it had programs set into it. So I would talk to the, the importer and the manufacturer and they were like, well, then don't use the programs, write your own. So then I had to learn how to write my own programs on the dryer. And then things were still not working well. And they were like, well, then don't use your own programs, use ours. And I was like, but you, right, but you're, it's not working. Just fortuitously, um, I had met some uh, industry people who had taken a liking to me. Um, they had found my Kickstarter campaign and we you know, started talking and one of them happened to be in town and was like, Hey, you know, I know you've been having trouble with that dryer of yours. You know, let me, let me come by and see if I can figure it out. And I'm like, Oh my gosh. Yes, please. And so he, he came to the kitchen and I, uh, I locked him inside the dryer and turned it on and I set it for like a really low fan speed and like no temperature. There's banging on the wall of the inside of the dryer and he comes out and his hair's all messed up. And he's like, you said you said that for 24 hertz. And I was like, I did. And he's like, that's not 24 hertz for the fan speed. And so we took apart the whole control panel and figured out that no matter what I was setting the fan speed for, it was running at like 65 hertz. So it was just like blasting the pasta. Well, there's no way I would have figured that out without just this like, wonderful human who had no reason really to help me except for that he wanted to and we were able to get the the frequency drive fixed so that it ran correctly and i was able to finally like get over that hump but there have been so many times within running this business where like just at the right time somebody hears that like cry for help or sees that like frustration and they're like oh Hey, I have some knowledge I can drop. And they drop that knowledge and all of a sudden I'm off and running. And I just I I get a lot of opportunities to to feel very grateful because, you know, I think that lots of people think that uh successful businesses are about the the entrepreneur at the heart of them. But I think that, you know, my success is directly correlated to all of the people who've been willing to step up and lend a piece of knowledge or help when I needed it. And you know, that combined with my pig-headed tenacity are the only reasons why I'm really still in business. Semolina is not only the name of your company, but also refers to the type of flour that you use. Semolina flour is made of durum wheat, which is considered a hard flour and produces a coarse flour when milled. This is all news to me. This is this is the fun part of having this, doing this research. I'm learning a lot more about wheat than I ever thought I, I would. Uh, why is semolina flour better for pasta than whole wheat 
and all-purpose flour? And then why do you use organic? Why is using organic flour important to you? All great questions. So semolina, particularly, uh, that coarse granulation is really critical, um, I think, to making great dried pasta. Let me go back a little bit. So durum wheat in its hardness is very special because there are there are wheats that exist. It is technically the hardest wheat of the hard wheats, but it is really special because it has this very u- unique gluten structure where it is not very elastic, but it's very plastic. So if you think of when you're making doughs and you're making a pizza dough and you want to get that window pane effect, that's about the elasticity of the flour or the of the proteins. The way that the protein structure in semolina or in durum exists is it doesn't get a lot of that rubber band effect. It doesn't get a lot of elasticity, but it will hold its shape really well. And so that's critical for just being able to make pastas that don't get all floppy and flimsy. What I've learned over time is that really coarse grind where all of the bran and all of the germ are removed in that coarse and very consistent granulation that makes semolina so special is that it hydrates really evenly and it gives that really dense toothy texture. And also it can be very aromatic. You can use whole grain durum flour to make pasta. It's the same wheat, but if you grind it, say on a, on a stone mill where the endosperm, the heart of the wheat, will get kind of pulverized into finer particles. And the bran and the germ, particularly the bran, fractures at a really high, larger size. You end up with something that can be both gritty and mushy at the same time, which is why even when you find whole grain pasta, it's usually not 100% whole grain because those really fine particles take up water really fast. And then you end up with pasta that gets really soft and it cooks too quickly. Um, and never gets that really great toothy al dente texture, but the brand never hydrates at all. And so you have these parts that don't hydrate. Um, and so for me, in the type of pasta that I want to make, I have focused pretty much extensively on semolina-based pastas because I want that wonderful toothy texture. I want that snap. And I want the aromatics, which is why we we dry all our pastas very slowly and at low temperatures, but um, it's still amplified by that coarse granulation size of the semolina. I use organic because it is as close as I am able to at my size to have some semblance of control over the growing practices of the flower. In a perfect world, I would be buying regeneratively grown wheat that is milled into semolina. But there are not a lot of mills in the country that mill semolina in its truest form. And even some of the ones that do don't mill great semolina. There, you know, there's a, um, an amount of sifting of the fine particles that needs to happen so that you can make great pasta. And so not all semolina is actually created equal. And so... It's super important to me that I maintain a a quality product with a level of consistency. And until I can find somebody who's running a long line roller mill who will mill small quantities of Durham that's 
that's grown regeneratively, I've decided not to move in that direction. But it is really my long-term goal. Wheats in general are a great companion or rotational crop and they um, sequester carbon in the atmosphere. So if you're not in a monoculture and you're using wheat part of the year to replenish the soil and then it's pulling carbon out of the atmosphere and creating better soil, it, I mean, there's there's so much benefit to that way of growing. Again, I'm just not there yet because I can't find uh, somebody who's milling the the flour the way that I want it to be done. So at least with organics, I know that they are not using petroleum-based inputs and petroleum-based fertilizers. They are not spraying the wheat with Roundup, you know, glyphosate, whether they're, you know, the, the science is you know, emerging on the health effects of glyphosate use. And, you know, it doesn't, you know, organic, certified organic doesn't mean that they can't use anything. It's just that there's some oversight about how they treat the product and what they can put in. And, and um, you know, I'm, I work with the California Wheat Commission. And so we're constantly on, on the quest to find growers and mills um, who could help me get to the next level. But at least in the meantime, this is this is my way of at least trying to make sure that I have a better product with better growing practices. A question that I ask a lot of small business owners is whether we do enough as a city to encourage people, especially women, to start or grow their own business here. So what do you think the city has done or has not done to support women and small businesses? I mean, I think that there are a lot of regulatory hurdles for small businesses in general, and it's not always clear uh, what the path is to get where you're going. And there are kind of confusing zoning issues and, and really challenging parking requirements. You know, I would love to sell wine at my retail shop so that people could take home pasta and wine. But there's a, there's some hurdles that exist within the, um, within the overlay or at least the last version of the overlay for the zone that I'm in. And so, you know, I think that there isn't necessarily a lot of collaboration. And I, I will say that as a female entrepreneur and talking to lots of other women owned businesses, you know, we all kind of want to do things by, by the bookish and finding partners within the city that are collaborative and willing to think for a mutual end goal that's good for the city and good for the business owner. It takes a lot of time and a lot. I mean, I, I recognize that's hard, but I think that that would go a long way to facilitating women in business because, you know, we don't necessarily have generation upon generation of, of people to tell us how to navigate the system. That said, I have found that, you know, at least in the city of Pasadena Health Department, people who, when, when you sit down and you talk to them and we figure out that the, what the end goals are, um, that they they've been great in helping me figure out how to do what they need me to do to create a, a safe environment that also fulfills my goals. And that's been fascinating, you know, fascinating and really helpful. Um, it's rare within health departments, I think, across the country and and should be commended because it's not always an easy relationship between food businesses and the health department. But it kind of should be <laughs> because really nobody wants to make anybody sick. 
everybody wants to create a space that's safe and compliant. And so just having people to talk to to work through those things is great. And they've let me ask questions and be kind of a pest so that I could get where I need to be. And and I really value that and appreciate it. And I think that more of that across the board can be really helpful. I will also commend the uh, the business department, especially in COVID yeah, times. You know, like I had to change my business entity and, and it didn't all make sense. And I didn't have all of the right things because I was a- being asked new questions. And it was the first time I'd ever had to do an entity change. And they were also really kind and worked to help me sort through it and get them the right things that they needed and, and navigate that. So I, will, I, I should give them credit too. One of your goals has been to open an Italian deli and customers can buy provisions at your shop, like a pasta sauce and stuff like that. But you recently started selling sandwiches and these aren't your normal Italian cold cut sandwiches I was going through the list of ones that you've done. There's one that's prosciutto, salsa di noci, fresh mozzarella, and then there's cecchi, fennel, and fennel pollen, and pecorino. And then over the weekend, we're recording this in early February, but over the weekend, there was a roasted acorn squash, arugula, watermelon, radish, and pecorino toscano. Why do you want to expand into fresh sandwiches, and what is your vision for your Lincoln location? If I break down my mission for my business in general, it's that I want to feed people. (laughs) I really want to create connection with my community and allow my neighbors to create connection with their friends and family through food, because that's how I operate in the world. And creating sandwiches is um, kind of a natural extension of that for me. You know, my medium has generally been pasta, but I want to I want to send send you, you know, out to the park to go eat lunch and then home with some pasta to cook for dinner. But I really just want there to be more delicious things that bring joy and connection for our neighborhood. Um, and my hope is as as time goes on, we'll be able to get those sandwiches um, every day. Uh, right now we're doing them Thursday through Saturday, but I am hopeful that uh, once I get it all dialed in. We'll be able to offer them daily. And they just, they're highlighting things that I love. One of the things that I think happens a lot um, is that the quality of those meats and cheeses on sandwiches tends not to be um, as great as uh, it could be. And, you know, as a as an American dried pasta producer trying to do the best job of making an Italian style product with old world values, the most Italian thing I think I can do is to highlight producers who are doing very Italian things, but here in the U.S. So um, our prosciutto is Casale's prosciutto from New York. Our spec is La Quercia spec from Iowa. Our uh, mortadella is from Olympia P- Provisions up in Washington. And all of these producers care about the animals that they're raising and the traditions that go into creating great cured meats. And then obviously seasonal ingredients. And we are so blessed here in Southern California to have great farmers. And um, even in the middle of winter, really amazing selection of, of produce. 
And so to me, that is also a highlight of what has always drawn me to Italian food is that it, it doesn't have to be complicated. It just has to start with really good ingredients. And, and in a sense, I want them to be sandwiches that people can think about how they can duplicate at home or how they can play with those ingredients and, and translate them into other things. And so it's a showcase for that as well. I mean, you can't get away with coming into the shop if I'm here and not talking for, you know, 35 minutes about what you're making for dinner. Um, it's just not going to happen. So it's a, it's a lot of that. It's just kind of empowering people to think about food in a different way and to give them opportun- more opportunities to take something great and share it with the people that they love. You shared that food is a love language. Connects us all. And America has a very interesting relationship with food. On one side, we have the fast food nation. And on the other, we have uh, Semolina, like yourself, that kind of values slowing down and enjoying the experience. Growing up as half Italian, but from both sides that really valued the, the process of making food. It's interesting to see the disconnect from my grandparents' generation to my parents' generation and how my grandmother would go to the market and probably spend an hour picking through green beans to make sure she had the right green beans uh, for dinner that night versus, you know what, instead of going and getting like a nice sandwich, I'll go to McDonald's because it's cheap and it's fast. Two diametrically opposed positions on how we think about food. When you think about it and the future of artisanal food, what do you see happening in the next couple of years? Oh, that's a really great question, James. And I think that, you know, the line that I am trying to learn to walk as a producer of something slower and and quieter is also recognizing the the factors that drive fast food nation, which is a lot of pressure on families, both financial and time. We spend an inordinate amount of time running around just trying to like live modern lives. And I think that what got lost between your your grandmother's generation and my grandmother's generation and, and our parents was that it didn't have to be elaborate or hard. And we were sold a bill of goods in that convenience meant we had to sacrifice deliciousness and healthfulness and connection. And, you know, I've learned a lot in that the, you know, that a lot of times when people are making those choices, they don't know that you can make something in a very short period of time, that it doesn't have to be complicated. It doesn't have to be stressful. You know, I mean, salad in my house is washed arugula with lemon juice and some cheese. (laughs) That's salad. Like, I don't make these, like, big old composed salads. My mother used to, you know, chuck carrots and just like arugula, pecorino, lemon, lemon vinaigrette. Call it a day, right? And so it's not time-consuming. But the... (sighs) But you have to know what to do with the food to to start with, Um, which is why I love when I get new cooks into the shop and and they're like, can I buy this jar of sauce? And granted, I love Bianco de Napoli. They make a great sauce, but I would rather sell you a can of Bianco de Napoli whole peeled tomatoes and tell you to go home and make the Marcella Hazan sauce with a half an onion, you know, an onion cut in half and a couple of garlic cloves and some butter because it has less in it 
and it there's this thing that happens and I see it all the time with people who are just learning how to cook where like things light up and they you get really proud of the thing that you've made and even though you only end up spending 10 or 15 minutes eating dinner you know in in that harried rush to bed there's a a bond that gets created over that experience and so maybe not everybody can do it every day but like trying to find ways to make it feel more accessible to cook and why i love italian food again is because I think the cooking is accessible. It's not about precise cuts. It's not about fancy techniques. It's about taking fresh ingredients, manipulating them slightly to make something delicious. Fundamentally, all I do for a living is move bags of flour and turn them in. You know, I add water to the flour and then I put flour in a in an environment to pull the water right back out. I just take flour and I change it around a bunch. But that ultimately, it's just this one thing. It's just flour and water, and it delivers so much joy in the end result. And so it's realizing, again, that like it doesn't have to be layered and complicated. And then being respectful of like that it's not going to happen every day. And, and how do you teach people how to how to batch cook, right? Like, well, you know, buy the really big can of tomatoes and spend the same 45 minutes and freeze three versions of it. So the next time you need sauce, you just pull it out of the freezer and just like trying to convey and teach those things to share that with people so that maybe they can get over the hump a little bit. For me, that's a huge part of what my vision for my business and the future is. You know, I'm I'm hopeful that in the next year that we're going to launch a, a community on our website to share recipes and talk about those things so that we can we can bring people into the fold because I think that we we still shame people for not knowing how to cook instead of understanding the the factors that got them to that place and so I think that just trying to cultivate connection and joy and comfort through food um, and share whatever knowledge we have to help people do it more often is the best thing that I can do with my time and my energy. And I, you know, I mean, I, there are a lot of, of terrible things that happened in COVID, a lot of struggles, but the one positive that I see is that a lot more people cooked for themselves and they found joy in it. It didn't feel like the chore that they were told, you know, 1950s advertising wasn't telling them that they were a slave anymore. <laughs> and that they were like, oh, wait, this is actually kind of fun to make bread. There's part of that story, right? Like the, the shift from your grandmother to your mother was that somebody told them that the thing that they were doing or, or, or your father, right? Like that, that the thing that they were doing was not the best use of their time. And that it was a chore and then they were slaves and that they, you know, that, that to sell you this convenience, now you don't have to do it. But there's a balance between convenience and connection. In one way, pasta is a blank canvas. A person can enjoy it simply or they can incorporate it into other dishes and dress it up a thousand different ways. Amazingly, I'm Italian, but I'm allergic to tomato sauce. And because of that, my, my kids now only associate pasta with butter and cheese. So I'm trying to introduce sauce into it. But when you're at home and eating pasta, you know, how do you like to enjoy it? And does your family get sick of it? I will say I have made a concerted effort not to eat it every day. We probably eat pasta no more than twice a week in our house. You know, I mix in other grains and sometimes no grains at all. It just depends on the meal. But um, we do not eat 
pasta as often as people probably think that we do. And um, that helps in that not just them getting sick of it, but me. And I'm constantly trying different ways. And it's funny that you say that I was allergic to tomatoes growing up. And so I learned to enjoy all sorts of different flavors than I think a lot of kids my age did because I was, I had no choice. Like I couldn't eat you know, just a regular spaghetti sauce dinner. And my and funny enough, she's not allergic to them, but my daughter does not like tomatoes and tomato sauce. So we we do pestos in our house. That salsa de noche that was on a sandwich last week is actually one of my favorite things to put on pasta. You know, it's just a, it's a walnut sauce and it's nutty and garlicky and slightly tangy and really easy to make and is particularly delicious with uh, spring vegetables. You know, going to the farmer's market is a lot of fun for me, though I don't get to do it as much anymore. But when it comes to spring, I drag my kids for the first fava beans and I drag them for the first uh, English peas and like, you know, I want them to get giddy about those things and they are much more excited about the first berries and strawberries, but I get that. And so we, we do a lot of things like that. I throw a lot of beans. I love that pasta has un- enabled me to eat a lot more vegetarian because it is such a, a, a great palate for things and so complementary of other things. Everyone in my family has got their favorite. So my daughter loves my pasta and lentils the most. My son is a big fan of Bucatini Amatriciana. That's the one that he asks for. My husband loves the chickpeas with uh, fennel sausage and fennel pawn. So I think the hardest thing for me is that I have to make things over and over again. And I like to try new things. And that is not always conducive with being a working mom and trying to make dinner. Sometimes you actually like I made a risotto last night that I hadn't done before. And I was like, I probably shouldn't have done this on a work night because that was a long time for dinner and nobody liked it. Everybody went slightly hungry, but you know, whatever, we'll all survive. (laughs) Uh, Leah, thank you so much for being a great part of Pasadena for bringing such wonderful flavors to our city and for coming on the podcast. I greatly appreciate it. Oh, thank you so much for having me, James. It was a lot of fun. My many thanks to Leah for coming on the show. What I especially love about Simolina is that their mission starts with the pasta they make. It is less about their simple ingredients and more about the ingredients of connection, enjoyment, and love that their customers use to craft inspired meals. So as Leia recommends, pick up one of their beautiful sandwiches for lunch and some pasta for a memorable dinner. For more information about Simolina Artisanal Pasta, please visit them at simolinapasta.com and follow them on social media, where you will get the latest updates on what they're doing and see some of the delicious things that they're creating. Their pasta lab and shop are located at 1976 Lincoln Avenue. And thank you for listening. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please consider subscribing, rating, and reviewing the show. The podcast can be found on most platforms, including Apple Podcasts and Stitcher, among many others. Please consider supporting the show either through direct sponsorship or Patreon. I would love your comments, feedback, and suggestions. You can reach me at james at thecrowncitypodcast.com and follow me on Instagram. Until next time, please remember to stay well, Stay engaged, and as always, see you around town.